you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Brian Hogan. Hello, all. Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. Eric Berry. Hey! I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we have another one of our speakers from Ruby Dev Summit. That's uh, Fabio Akita. Fabio, you hey, want to say how hi? Hey, how are you doing, guys? Nice to be here again. Yeah, you, you were on a few months ago. Do you want to just kind of remind everybody real quick who you are and what you do? Sure, of course. I believe I've, uh, most people know me uh, by the alias of Akira on Rails. So I've been blogging for like the past 10 years at AkiraOnRails.com. And here in Brazil, I've been organizing RubyConf Brazil for the past nine years. And um, I'm not so strong a coder in the open source community. I've been doing a, a few co- contributions here and there, maybe more in the beginning, way before GitHub and GitLab, we had uh, other uh, concerns in terms of using how to use Git. So I was contributing to that uh, area as well. Uh, I, I forgot the name of the project. Do you, do you guys remember uh, which uh, Git repository came before GitLab that was open source? Like mm. Git one? Uh, I forgot the name. Anyways. <laughs> and then I've been, uh, I've been doing lots of talks on uh, Ruby in Brazil in, uh, in the international community as well. So I was at Ruby Kaigi and a few conferences in uh, Europe as well. And uh, my, you, my recent, most recent topics has been around how as a Rubyist you dive into those new languages such as Elixir, such as Crystal and all the other stuff uh, coming out. So uh, I've been, uh, usually that's, that's what most people have been reading in my blog. Nice. And that's, that's what you're on to talk about and what you're going to be speaking at at the conference. Um, exactly. It's, it's funny because uh, I've talked to several people that have moved on to Elixir. In fact, when I was reaching out to people for Ruby Dev Summit, um, I had quite a number of people saying, I'm doing Elixir now, not interested. And uh, then I interviewed Dave Thomas in July, and he also you know, basically said, yeah, I still I still use Ruby for for things that I just need something that, you know, I'm really familiar with and works. But, you know, most of the stuff I, I'm doing is in Elixir. And he basically said that that's the way that programming is going to go. We're going to move toward the functional um, immutable stuff like Elixir. And so I'm curious, you know, should we just all give up and go do Elixir? So this this is a big uh, one of the biggest questions uh, around the Ruby's minds nowadays. That should we switch to Elixir because that's where the the trendy hipster programmers are going, or maybe should I even go as far as changing completely from the Ruby 
syntax to something like more ancient, like Lispy uh, languages such as Clojure, or doing something crazy and go directly to Haskell for because why not? Uh, and the uh, the answer is. I, I believe one of the, the mistakes that people make is that they have to choose one language that should be their, uh, their cause uh, or something like that. And to me, languages are just tools in my toolbox. So uh, I will use Ruby and Ruby on Rails for as long as it makes sense uh, to bring value to customers or to my own projects. And uh, I don't believe that new languages can replace uh, existing languages out of the box without... Uh, a real disruption in the industry for that matter. So Elixir, for example, is a great language because it makes Erlang accessible. So in the last 10 years, people, has been, uh, people have been uh, looking into what scalability means and how do you scale to massive uh, volume. So there are cases, where, for example, if you're making a game server, if you're making something like Slack or Facebook Messenger, if you are Facebook or if you are a Google size and you need like a, a million users connected at once and not breaking out a sweat. So you're not going to do that with languages such as Python, such as Ruby, such as even JavaScript uh, for that matter. Uh, it, it is a lot of work, requires a lot of uh, intensive infrastructure uh, work. It's not trivial. And uh, languages such as Erlang make that, make that work easier, but again, not trivial. And many of the languages that came in the last 10 years, such as Scala or Clojure, have been uh, trying to achieve Erlang levels of availability and scalability. So Elixir brings Erlang itself to the table and makes it accessible. That's its strength. But I don't think it's a replacement for other languages. So it's a very good language with a very strong case for those particular cases, but it's not a, a perfect uh, replacement for Ruby or for Python or any other language. So I think we should start from the, from there. I remember a keynote talk that Matt's gave at RubyConf, I think it was three or four years ago, but he basically got up and said that Ruby is a ZPE language, which is 0.8 language. In other words, um, 80% of the cases Ruby handles just fine. And a lot of the other general purpose languages out there are ZPE languages. They handle 80% of the cases just fine. And so it's that other 20%, right? It's the, you know, the couple of things that you mentioned that Elixir does really well. If, if you need those, then you're going to want to switch. And if you don't, then, you know, consider whether or not it's worth learning a new language versus, um, you know, and going through that whole process versus just going with something that's similar that's going to work just fine. Yeah, exactly. And if you, if you guys remember correctly, uh, when Ruby on Rails, uh, which was the poster child of the uh, Ruby language for the Western world, was released, I believe, in 2000, by the end of 2004 or something like that, uh, it was never a full solution. Even the, to this day, DHH... Uh, never try to achieve a web framework that could do everything. So it's on the philosophy of Ruby on Rails to to make those 80% cases uh, right and uh, leave room so we can uh, spend time doing the 20% that's most difficult uh, when the when the trivial stuff is out of the way. So Ruby kind of fits that profile. 
being a language that's not difficult, being enjoyable to you, so I don't have to uh, be hunting bits and uh, brushing bits all over the place to make trivial stuff happen. So it was not a replacement for the status quo of Java Enterprise or ASP.NET. So you could do Ruby on Rails uh, to do the 80% of the web, and then we could we could use the time better to do scalability or security or availability stuff. So Elixir, and this is a this is this is a, an important thing. Elixir is not a difficult language, so maybe people approach it like it's a functional language with those uh, strange, alien, immutable things. But at its heart, uh, it I really don't feel that wall that I feel when I try to use Haskell, for example, or even Elm, for that matter. Uh, Elixir is very approachable. It feels object-oriented in spite of being called a functional language. So it's way closer to Ruby than most people think it is. So it's not so difficult. The language itself is easy. The difficult part is to realize that Erlang, Erlang by itself is a it's almost an operating system. So when you boot an, <laughs> an Elixir, yeah, exactly. So it, it's it's a realization that you don't get out of the box uh, as the way I'm uh, I'm trying to uh, explain. I, I believe most people don't explain it like that. So for the, an initiator, Elixir is an operating system. Whenever you boot it, you're booting an entire set of services. So every Elixir project, uh, if it's a Phoenix web project or a React-based, a React core-based uh, distributed database-like project or RabbitMQ or Jabber, uh, they are booting several microservices. So in their, in their initializer, you, you describe which applications you want to boot. So it's almost like editing a uh, system D daemons, uh, enabling several daemons to boot with your system that's available as a service. So logging, for example, is a service. Uh, and every uh, connection pool for database is another separate application. It's a daemon. So it's, it's like booting a lot of different services. And your application is one service uh, making use of those available resources. And the Erlang operating system, let's call it like that, do all the hard work of, of the equivalent of forking processes or killing processes, monitoring, doing, uh, doing, their, uh, doing their maintenance of the system in a way that you are not supposed to uh, bring the, the Erlang operating system down. Uh, in the beginning, at, when it was uh, first uh, conceived, it, it, it was not supposed to be used the way uh, we usually do deployments with Ruby where we uh, git push to Heroku, then the, uh, the Puma processes are shut, uh, they, they shut down those processes, then start them up again to uh, boot the new code. In the Erlang uh, environment, you were supposed to hot reload code if you want to have the uh, availability part of the equation right. So you could have an uptime of months of an er out of an Erlang uh, virtual machine. And the idea is, that it was made for telephony services. So you're not supposed to drop uh, telephone calls in the middle uh, of the conversation whenever you want to uh, hot fix a bug, for example. 
it's more uh, it's more like having a Linux server killing one process without disrupting the rest of the of the services. It's in this context, each process that you uh, you put in the Erlang virtual machine has its own garbage collector. It's not a global garbage collector. So the the immutability and the isolation goes to the process level. And the, what we call process in Elixir is akin to what, what we would call an object in Ruby. So we can send messages to a Ruby object and it has their own internal uh, state. And that's exactly how a process in Elixir behaves. Uh, it, it's not like it's not the same implementation, of course, but uh, in terms of the abstraction, it's uh, something similar. So what took you from being the 80% developer with Rails, what actually drew you into Elixir? Because oftentimes, the, the reason I, I see uh, uh, people uh, uh, Rails became so big because it solved the problem of the 10 times programmer, right? It, it provided a, a mechanism for developers to become extremely more productive than they were before. I came from the Java background, and when I went over there, I was able to get 10 times as much done in the same amount of time. And I don't see Elixir providing, there hasn't really been another framework or language out there that has come out since that offers that type of increase. So what took you from Rails and say, you know what, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go this direction and, and, and focus on this and see if that will also fill my needs? What drove that decision? Sure. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, I, I am a, a hacker at heart. So uh, whenever anything new comes up, uh, if I'm going to make a, uh, a business out of that or not, I'm probably gonna try to use it. So that's that's what I do every day. So I believe last week I saw last last month I saw a language called Nim. I have no idea what it's used for, but it was cool. So I was trying to learn it, for example. And then uh, I was uh, I'm I'm about to uh, kick off a new conference this week called DeConf. Uh, this is a segue, but in the beginning I I wanted to do designs for that conference. Then I decided to learn Blender and do 3D modeling. So that's just out of uh, out of my uh, time off for, for the holidays. I was learning 3D modeling. So this is something that I do. Erlang, when when I first saw it like 10 years ago, it it was uh, not a not an enjoyable experience. So I never had a prologue background. So anyone that never tried prologue will probably feel like Erlang is an awful language. And this is probably my prejudice because I never had that kind of background. But for most of most developers that are used to Ruby, Python, JavaScript, or Java backgrounds, will feel that Erlang is, is absolutely not something that you can envision yourself doing as a, as a, a job. So when Elixir came out, it solved that problem. Now I can have the Erlang power without having to go through ancient prologue-isms uh, and do something more conventional in our in our uh, the way we program uh, usually. So this is one aspect. The other aspect is not it's not that I was trying to replace Ruby on Rails. I uh, I still do Ruby on Rails for a living. So. This is my uh, day job. So I do Ruby programs. I still do Rails programs. Rails as a as a community grew a lot. It grew exponentially since 2004, 2005. Every single problem that 
didn't have a library 10 years ago now have like 20 different uh, alternatives so that we can pick and choose. So it's very easy to solve the web uh, application problem using the Ruby on Rails stack plus the uh, environment uh, that we created. So the Elixir part comes out of a desire of trying to solve specific problems in distributed com uh, distributed computing. So I was exploring more the, those scenarios where you have thousands of web sockets that needs that need to be connected all the time. So it's not fast requests that we're used to that we can solve with CDNs or caches. Having messages coming from the server to the consumer. So those specific those those specific uh, scenarios uh, are exactly where languages such as Elixir can help solve. So that's why I started to learn Elixir. And in my mind, uh, most people think that it's a big investment to learn a, little, a new language. That's why they have those questions. Should I learn this language or that language? And that's why I decided to make this uh, the talk I'm proposing to the, to the conference, which is showing how within a span of like uh, 30 days, I was able to go from Ruby to Elixir to Crystal and back to Ruby and show the uh, pros and cons. But uh, the message being that I didn't took three years to learn Elixir, I took like 30 days. Uh, it's not a, a, a lot of time. It's I'm not an expert in Elixir, but I can solve the 80% problems, for example. So the, it's not difficult to learn a new language, especially one that's not so alien like a prologue uh, a prologue-like language. If it's something like Ruby, like Python, like JavaScript, it's really not that difficult to learn. It just needs a little bit of practice. Uh, and once you're once you're up and running, it it's uh, it's a no-brainer to uh, approach problems using the, that new language. For example, that's really similar to the uh, to the the journey that I took with Elixir. I I was facing a very specific use case where it was. Lots of WebSocket connections, lots of communication going on. And I had tried to do it with Rails and Redis and the, the Fay WebSocket library. And the thing kept falling over when I got more than about 10 requests. And I don't think that was necessarily a problem with the technologies I was using. More of it was a problem of how I put them together. But I had visited a conference and I saw someone speaking about uh, speaking about uh, Elixir at Phoenix, which is this is back in 2014, so things were very, very, very early days uh, with with Phoenix, and and the speaker kind of just showed how easy it was uh, to to pull these things together. And I'd already been dabbling with Elixir for a little while because you know it's that sort of hacker thing, but it's also you know peer pressure. The people that you, the people that you work with, people that you see, the people that you look up to, they're they're you know, they're using it, uh, and you go, well, okay, there's got to be something here, so you dabble in it. Um, but yeah, it was sort of the same thing. And I've, I've, I've launched that project and it's the only thing I've done in Elixir. And I'm, I still hack on it every day. Um, but it hasn't replaced rails. It, it was the perfect replacement for rails for that specific point in time for me. Um, and I love it. I think Elixir is a fantastic language, but it isn't something that, that I also have said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going whole hog into this because I find certain things about Elixir to be a little more tedious than they should be. So that was really interesting to hear that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that. yeah, and exactly. And uh, for example, it's uh, whenever a new language comes up, saying uh, we're going to replace uh, exactly what you already have, 
this is something that I don't trust very much. For example, when Rails came out, it was not trying to replace enterprise Java by doing enterprise Ruby. So it was not that case. Uh, the problem was at the time we were trying to, we, we, we either had an enterprise stack choice or we had a uh, run-of-the-mill uh, ad hoc uh, put together code hack, uh, hackish uh, scripts that we could try to CGI all the way into web servers. So we didn't have a middle ground where you could build reliable web applications without going all the way to uh, enterprise architecture or having to deal with scripts uh, script that you had to download from many different places. So you, you, you now had one cohesive uh, set of tools and, fra and one framework that work it together to build a cohesive application that was maintainable, that had best practices. So it was it was a very different approach. Uh, if you were a programmer with experience back then, you would see it and immediately recognize that it was filling a gap that had no contenders at the time. Then exactly. When, mm -hmm. Exactly. And then again, when Rails made sense and people were flocking into it, now everyone tried to drink the Rails Kool-Aid and do, as we were discussing, PHP on Rails or Python on Rails or everything, VB.net on Rails, whatnot. So we had a time where many people tried to copy the Rails uh, structure. Was it this, this scaffolding? Was it the... Uh, the web routing, restful routing stuff. So people were trying to figure out what made Rails, Rails. And in my mind, what made Rails work was the philosophy behind making the 80% use cases approachable, not solving the 100% like we used to do in the, uh, in the uh, enterprise architecture uh, arena. And nowadays, I see a lot of senior Ruby developers complaining exactly that Rails is not cool. It's not cool because it it doesn't provide answers for the remaining 20%. And now they want to do Rails enterprise Rails stuff. Uh, are the perfect modular web web framework that can solve any problem with 100% uh, modularity and explicitness. So there is a faction that is denouncing Rails exactly because of what make Rails Rails. And going to new languages is just one way to rebel to that uh, category, I believe. Uh, and of course, uh, there are different projects nowadays. We have small projects. We have GitHub level uh, big projects. So it, it's, it's obvious that just one single technology can't solve all that range of problems. So that's why you can see people at Facebook or at Netflix or even, even at GitHub or other big companies adopting other technologies to solve specific problems. So Facebook is still uses the, their PHP dialect, I believe it's called uh, Hype, I believe, uh, but they're using Erlang, they used Erlang for the Facebook Messenger. Now they're writing their own languages to solve those problems. So that's how the industry is going, I believe. I don't want to derail us too much, but the other part of your talk is Crystal. And I've heard some people talking about Crystal, not as many as Elixir. But what's the story yeah. there? I mean, are people actually using that in production and, you know, building interesting and awesome things? I know it's compiled and so it's supposed to be really fast. But yes. 
and I like Crystal a lot. So Crystal is still at version 0.2122, something like that. They have a roadmap that they are pushing uh, towards releasing 1.0 by the end of this year, probably beginning of next year. So we're, we should have uh, a stable API in the next couple of months. So what I like about Crystal in a lot of ways is something that I like about languages such as Rust or Swift, for example. So uh, I've been a Rubies for the last 10 years, but since 2010, uh, I was also trying to do mobile stuff. So I learned a lot of Objective-C and I was doing lots of iOS and Mac related stuff. And Objective-C to me, was a good enough language. So uh, I enjoyed the language. Many people don't like the brackets and uh, the weird C-like syntax that is not exactly C. Uh, and Apple, Apple knows that. They like the language, but they know that they can't reach uh, all of the new developers doing JavaScript that language. So they create a language as, called Swift. And the segue is because Crystal and Swift and Rust at their core, they, are, they come from the same place. How many of you guys have heard of uh, LLVM or used LLVM? I have. I, I, know, I know LLVM causes me problems every time I set up a new computer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and for good reason. A, I, I know it, unfortunately. Yeah, so the, the story of LLVM is not, is not very stable, depending on where you come from. You probably love it or hate it. Uh, most people usually hate it because it conflicts with GCC and uh, several other stuff in your machine. So the, the story here is when you're in Linux and you want to make a compiler, you, us you usually go to GC GCC route and do something like... Uh, compiling Java to native binary using a GCC backend, and you can do crazy stuff with GCC. But uh, as many uh, old stuff in Linux, this is a monolith that's very difficult to maintain and even more difficult to, uh, to extend. So whenever you need to create a new language, it's not exactly a walk in the park. So Chris Latner uh, created this concept of LLVM which uh, tries to make a modular compiler. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to explain it in a very rough way, not exactly how it is, but to make it uh, easier for the listeners to understand. Imagine that you can break GCC down into three different components, a front end, a middle layer, and a back end. The front end is responsible of getting the, any source code in any language and spitting out an intermediate language called the IL. And this uh, intermediate step can be optimized through uh, normal compiler optimizations, such as inlining, branch prediction, uh, removing unnecessary code, and doing all sorts of optimizations, and then uh, inputting that into a backend, which is responsible to uh, create the native bytecode, so the, an ELF64 for Linux or a Win64 uh, compatible binary for Windows or even a binary for ARM processors for, uh, for uh, iOS. Uh, so you have this, this infrastructure and this framework. So LLVM stands for low-level virtual machine, although it's not a virtual machine, it's a, a compiler framework. And the, the, beaut the beauty of this is that when Apple 
adopted that technology, it was very seamless. If you were a Mac developer, you wouldn't perceive it so uh, in, a, in a very noticeable way. The only thing that people usually notice when they develop for uh, iOS compared to Android is that the iOS simulator in, in the Mac, it's super fast and super responsive, whereas the Android uh, simulator, when you run it, it's slow as hell because uh, the Android simulator is actually running in an emulated environment. So it's like opening VirtualBox. And the iOS simulator is actually running native binaries compatible with Intel processors. So it's not being uh, emulated at all. It's a native binary running as natively as uh, the, your text editor or Xcode itself. So whenever Xcode compiles uh, an iOS application, it can spit out uh, both Intel-compatible binaries and uh, ARM-compatible binaries for the uh, different platforms. That's how it works. So they've been perfecting that backend for the past few years. They, they changed the GCC backend to the LLVM backend. Then they made the um, front-end stable. Then they replaced the, LLV, the GCC front-end. So you could now compile C and C++ and Objective-C down to LLVM, and they replaced GCC completely. So this whole story uh, made LLVM a very, a very mature and very strong tool that could not only be used to compile Objective-C to iOS applications, but also uh, allow Apple to create this new language called Swift that could, that could coexist with Objective-C and both would compile to the same binaries. Now, if you take that technology and, uh, and uh, put it in the hands of uh, other developers, other needs, you get, for example, Mozilla uh, adopting LLVM and developing their own language called Rust. So the, now you have a Rust front end that can compile down uh, to LLVM and go through the same optimizations. And then the, the Crystal guys came up uh, with uh, with the question, what if we could make a Ruby-like language that have uh, all the syntax that we know and love, plus some additional things that uh, could make it more robust or more performant? So they they got the Ruby design. They added a um, strong typing, static typing actually, and they made it. A, they made a front end for LLVM that can compile down to binaries for Mac or for Linux, for example. They're now working on uh, making it, making them compatible with uh, Windows as well. And I, I believe it's already compatible with ARM processors. So they've been working hard. It's not, it's not as trivial as I may be uh, making it sound. So it's not just plugging Lego-like components together, but the framework is there. So a very small team could build a, a new language that compiles to very optimized binaries using that infrastructure. So the, those guys are from Argentina. They, uh, they, are, they were like two developers in the beginning. Now they have a team of like six developers doing hard work into uh, making, making it ready for 1.0. So the, the interesting part is that while you have Elixir in the more super scalable, super availability server work, so it's good for distributed computing, 
Now, if you want to build system level tools, so daemons or Docker-like tools for infrastructure and DevOps, either you, you would have to write it in C or have to learn all the idiosyncrasies of Rust, which is a good language, but it's not easy to learn, or you can go to Go. And Go I, is a language that I think missed a lot of points because they had a chance to make a modern language, but for some reason it still has a lot of C++-isms that I really dislike, such as being able to uh, move pointers in their channels and thus uh, defeating the whole purpose of having a friendly language. So Crystal is trying to be like Go, but with modern syntax, all the Rubyisms that we like without having to deal with low-level stuff such as pointers or mutexes and stuff like that. So right now, it, the only feature that it's really missing is using all the cores in your machine with one uh, binary. You can run multiple binaries, but using all the cores is, uh, is not a feature yet. But it already has concurrency within one process, uh, fibers, which is like... Uh, the goal implementation of channels. So you can have goal-like performance right now in a single binary without having to install uh, dozens of dependencies in your machine. You can just get that one executable copy and paste to another machine and it will run without having to use Go. So this is, this is a hell of a, a goal to pursue and I think they are succeeding. Well, once they unlock being able to use all cores with one processor with that fibers infrastructure, I, uh, I think it has the potential to crush Go as it is right now. This episode is sponsored by Airbrake. I don't know about you, but week in and week out, I spend hours debugging my code when I could be working on building new stuff. Then I started using Airbrake.io, our latest sponsor, and the time I spent debugging was cut in half. Airbrake alerts you to errors in your software, then helps you diagnose and fix them. That means no more wasted time searching log files and more time writing and shipping great code. Airbrake supports .NET and all major programming languages. Sign up at getairbrake.com rogues for a free 30-day trial and the chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end of the month. It's a completely free trial and you'll be shocked at how much time it saves you. Again, that's getairbrake.com rogues. Hello? Yeah, we're still here. <laughs> Just, just no, kind I was just of thinking absorbing. about that. Yeah. Just sort of not. I'm, I'm nodding, nodding vigorously because I, I agree wholeheartedly with your comments about Go, um, and then, you know, then I started thinking, yeah, this crystal thing is probably something I need to look at. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the fun thing is, and this is, of course, it, it only works for small projects and uh, demos, but you can almost, almost select all your Ruby code, paste it into a crystal source code, and it's going to probably compile. So it's, 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 it, it, their goal is not to be 100% Ruby compatible, but as it is right now, it's almost doing Ruby. So you can spend the most of your time learning the uh, other 10% of stuff that Ruby doesn't have, like macros. How how portable how portable if you build if you build let's say you build a small command line utility with it how portable is it across operating systems can it, can you do the cross compiling like Go can yet or are you still kind of stuck with whatever architecture you compile it for is the architecture you run it on? 
Yeah, this is uh, right now. You can you can uh, compile in, uh, for example, in Linux for to to a Linux binary and cross compile it to a Mac binary, for example. But it's still not as easy as Go. So okay. uh, you can do it. It's still a little bit hackish. They're mm -hmm. working on it for 1.0, and the uh, the goal is to have cross compile binaries for any platform. Interesting. I have a I have a very very specific situation where I need to build command line applications, and uh, the what I'm doing in Go right now is just I, I'm just unhappy with it. So could be, uh, yeah. it could be it, could be a good weekend experiment to see how far I can get. <laughs> yeah. So it's still not perfect. You can yeah. do it, for example, for a situation where you're developing on a Mac and you're deploying, for example, to a Linux server. You can you can make uh, the Mac version compile to the Linux server and just uh, copy and paste the binary, and it will run. Uh, but it's not just a simple flag dash dash cross compile. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things. Is it, is it simpler? Is it simpler to just spin up a Docker container and build it in the container instead? You know. <laughs> yeah, that that works. That totally yeah. works, actually. Okay. And by the way, it, the compiler is fast. So, for for example, for 1.0, there's a feature that they're still implementing called incremental compiling. So right now, you have to compile the whole thing every time. Uh, and when I say like this, it sounds awful. But if you consider that to compile the entire Crystal, it's source code itself. So compiling Crystal using Crystal, it takes 20 seconds to do it. Hmm. I wonder if languages like that will really take hold, though. It seems, it seems very common that popularity plays such a large part in the success of projects like these. And even if it does solve a, a better solve the problem better or provide basically if it's a better solution that that isn't necessarily going to be what makes it survive or die. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I, I believe that every every language or new technology needs a killer app. So, for example, for Ruby uh, in the Western world was Ruby on Rails was the killer app. So for PHP, it is probably WordPress and Magento. Uh, for Go, it uh, ends up being Docker. So uh, whenever you it, whenever you have uh, an infrastructure situation where you need to have very small uh, REST APIs to uh, communicate agents between monitoring systems uh, or any kind of command line tool to uh, Docker Compose or Docker something, you usually end up doing either in Python or in Go. And many people usually try Go because if they need the small footprint of not having uh, any overheads, using very little resources, and don't having to install any dependencies. So the whole installation and setup process becomes very easy. In the Ruby case, for example, if I decided to make a, 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 a Docker-like tool in Ruby, it's usually a very difficult. Uh, in the, if you try to use Chef or Puppet uh, or any of those tools, it is very difficult because Ruby is not... Uh, updated in many stable Linux distros. So you have to install your own, you have to install dependencies, then you have to install Chef and, and everything else just to run an agent to uh, start orchestrating your servers. Whereas if you can build it with Crystal or Go, you can build just one binary and deploy that binary across many different servers and they just work. So that's the, 
that's right. the game for the infrastructure guys. It's probably not something that we as web developers will use every day, but for DevOps, it's a big deal. And uh, they, that's one reason they really like Go. It's it's one of the same things like you know the Heroku application. It used to be a Ruby gem, and which meant to deploy to you know Heroku. Yeah, you had to. You probably already had Ruby installed, but you know you you still had to make sure everything was ready just so you could install to Heroku. You know, and they yeah. replaced that. They replaced that a couple of years with with a Go version, a Go a Go based version of it, which is faster and easier to get up and running, and easier for them to distribute and easier for them to maintain. Um, and and those are those are. It's always, always the biggest the biggest trade off that I have with Ruby is when I'm I love Ruby and I love using it for simple scripts and I love using it for my own workflow I love using it for building web based applications, but you know those times when I want to I want to here's a tool I want to build, I will often build the prototype version in Ruby just to prove the concept, and then it's off to figure out okay what language am I going to rewrite it in so that I can make it a portable type type of thing, because yeah. asking people asking people to install. And even even things like Ansible, I need to have a working Python installation in, installed in order to use that. And it's like, oh, that's just an additional thing. I just want a thing. I want to I want to distribute this this thing for other people to use without asking them to jump through a bunch of hoops. Here, go install a JVM and set up your path, and then go install Ruby and set up a path, and you know, things like that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in in the beginning, for Heroku, it made sense because the only language supported at yeah. Heroku was Ruby. So every mm -hmm. Heroku client had to have Ruby pre-installed, but once yep. they opened the doors to every other language, now that became an issue. So yep. going to Go is much easier. One other example, for, if you will, uh, is Dropbox client. Dropbox client, I believe to this day, it's still written in Python. Uh, yep. So the client is very heavy. Uh, it, the overhead is uh, is not something that you can ignore. Uh, sometimes people will feel their machines getting sluggish because the something uh, within those scripts are misbehaving, and it's not fast. Uh, they I don't know if they have any intentions to re to uh, replace it, but if the, someone would build a version right now, it would probably be in something like Go because it can be cross compiled to different architectures to a small binary that uses very little resources. Um, and now the Crystal language makes the case for us Ruby developers that want to build our own uh, client uh, command line tools or uh, server applications or even just a small web route that needs to be very fast because, uh, I don't know, it's, uh, for, it's an analytics situation where you have hundreds of thousands of requests coming up very fast and you want an endpoint that's very small and very fast that can receive those. So you could have just that be a crystal application while the rest of your application is all the Rails applications you already have. So you could use both without having to make a, a very big switch in your mind between different languages. Do you see Rails or developers of Rails using these other languages in tandem at any time in the future. So, for example, if 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 I'm I want to do the majority of my work in Rails, but I do want to take advantage of some of the features that that Elixir has or or Crystal has, do you see a way where developers are going to be able to utilize both of those in, in tandem together? I think a lot of yeah. people already have through extensions. Yeah. You had like uh, Nokogiri yeah. with C extensions and, you know, uh, I've seen proof of concepts for crystal programs using C extension or to use a Ruby extension. 
to use that as a Ruby extension. I'm doing uh, Rails for one part of the app and and uh, Elixir and Phoenix for the other and just sharing sessions. Does that work good? Yeah, works just fine. You just have to yeah, tell Rails to you have to tell Rails to use JSON sessions and uh, for for marshalling them. Then as long as both applications have the same key, your sessions work fine. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the web part, uh, even before that, uh, for example, uh, I, I never saw many many uh, people doing that. But even if you wanted to integrate, for example, WordPress with uh, Rails applications, just usually just a matter of sharing sessions. So uh, you can you can uh, achieve those kinds of integrations in the uh, in the uh, web layer, but in terms of the other other language such as Crystal or Elixir, I I could see Crystal being used, for example, for very CPU intensive processing. Uh, nowadays, you already have Sidekick rewritten in Crystal that you can use side by side with a Rails application. So you could uh, push uh, an item to a Sidekick uh, Redis queue and have a crystal version actually fetching uh, those items from the queue and processing using crystal. So if you have very intensive um, data extraction, transformation and load, for example, or if you need to, I know, uh, from that uh, endpoint send a thousand emails at once, uh, something like that, something that needs real data processing, CPU power, not something that's IO, IO bound, but that those situations could use something like Crystal. Crystal uh, is, not, is not meant to be an embeddable language, so unfortunately it can't replace uh, extensions yet. Um, for that, you could use Rust, for example, uh, which, which is a much lower footprint language that even don't need to have a garbage collector. So you can have a very small, for things that are very specific, like a Nokogiri-like situation, you could use Rust instead of C, just because it's uh, much safer and easier to write a, a performant and secure extension, use Rust. But for other, other higher level situations, such as backend processing, you could probably use Crystal for, so image processing or video processing, data processing, uh, big data situations, uh, anything that requires a lot of CPU could use something like Crystal, which is exactly the situation where we, you would use Go. And whenever you have a distributed, uh, distributed computing, distributed messaging, so it's a, if I had, to, I usually say that if I had to build a new Cassandra or a new NoSQL database, I would probably start with something like Elixir instead of having to write everything myself to make the coordination and the uh, orchestration, balancing, and everything else that comes out of the box in an Erlang VM. So uh, the, exact, the exact situations where uh, Elixir shines exactly where RabbitMQ, uh, Jabberd, React, and those kinds of in infrastructures were built in, uh, to solve. Cool, that's awesome. I don't know. There are some other other places that will have like the Rails applications. Uh, a Rails application will put you know put the things uh, put things into some kind of a queue, whether it's Rescue or RabbitMQ or Psychic or something like that. And then they'll just have another process pull pull things out. And I, I've done that with I've done that with uh, Elixir. I've had Elixir Elixir agents running against a, a RabbitMQ to pull things out and operate on them to send messages. So there's lots of different ways we can we can do that. Which means 
that's kind of how we you know, we use our platform, right? As as as, as Rubyists, as software developers, we we've, we've we we started using Ruby. A lot of us started using Ruby because we saw that it was the right tool for the job. Um, and Ruby took a little while to become you know to become noticed by people because they say, well, that's not the right tool for the job. This is the right tool, and we just kind of keep beating that drum. Uh, and if we if we live by that same that same uh, that same idea that we're going to use the right tool for the job, you know, then when these other things come around, we're not trying to put a you know a square peg into a round hole. We really can say, hey, this for this particular thing, Crystal's the right approach, and for this particular thing, Go is the right approach, and we can we can put our Rails application together with. Uh, with Elixir, and we can use the right tools for the job in in a true sense, as opposed to using the tool I know to solve every problem. Which is why Rails came became popular in the first place. We had a lot of people using big, heavy Java stuff, uh, right? We, we using because you didn't have any other options. Your PHP or your Java, like like Fabio said, uh, we had a lot of people trying to use big, heavy Java stuff to solve applications that were really only used by like twenty five people. Um, but that was what they knew. That's what they had. That was what was available, um, and you know, if if more developers start looking at things like this is the right tool for the job, maybe that's how they gain popularity in in the eyes of other developers, and that's how they become viable solutions. All right. Well, anything else that we should jump into before we go to picks? We've been talking for about an hour. Oh yeah, maybe uh, there's just one one last aspect that I would like to uh, pinpoint. Uh, there's one reason. Yeah, there's just one other reason why I uh, particularly like uh, Crystal Elixir. So Ruby on Rails, in many ways, uh, it was important because Ruby by itself in the mid-2000s, if you had to pick a language, choose a language, which language would you choose to be your daily driver? No one in their right minds would choose Ruby because uh, you already had stuff like Python or Perl. So if you wanted a scripting language, you had better choices uh, choosing Perl, which had a, a much larger and extensive library uh, at CPAN. Uh, if you wanted an enterprise, you could go Java, Java or .NET. If you want to build uh, infrastructure tools, you could use C, as many people have been doing for decades now. So choosing Ruby was definitely not the best choice. It was slow. It was difficult to deploy. You didn't have Puma. You didn't have Unicorn. You didn't have Heroku. Uh, so even even the task of making Ruby stay up in an Apache extension mod or something, uh, it was a daunting task. So the Rails community proved that you could you could get uh, an underdog language, which was not even the fastest nor the best language to the job and build an entire community that's, uh, that's, that could become this large. So no one in their right mind will write something as big as GitHub in a language such as Ruby, but we did. And not only we did that, but we built all the concepts and the abstractions and the infrastructure tools to make that possible. So adopting Git was one of them, the Git workflow, the whole approach of... Uh, orchestrating infrastructure as a software started in this uh, seriously in this community when Heroku was launched. So uh, in many ways, we proved that an exotic and different language could not only survive, but flourish and become a staple of the industry. So that opened the doors to many new languages. Not only that, uh, it shifted the power from the enterprise vendors 
to the open source community and back again to the big startups. So once upon a time, you would choose, you would not choose Java or .NET. You would either choose IBM or BA or Oracle or uh, one of those vendors. Now uh, we came full circle and I think this is one of the saddest parts because we came full circle and now you don't choose uh, to use JavaScript or Go or Elm or any of those languages. We actually, most people are choosing, I'm going to use Google or Facebook or Microsoft or Apple. So uh, in many ways, I think we are re- going back uh, to the 90s all over again. And instead of uh, choosing concepts such as uh, quality of life, uh, quality of code, writing enjoyable code, the code that is beautiful, code that's testable, maintainable, stuff like that, we're actually choosing uh, the cool kids at the big startups. So Crystal and Elixir are two of the two of the languages that don't have one of those big uh names behind them so in many ways they're kind of like what ruby is in terms of being the underdog of the industry so this is one reason why i like them because in spite of being not backed by big uh, big pockets such as google's or facebook's they can still compete and be as fast as secure as optimized so they deserve a lot of kudos for their uh, for their work. So this is uh, one big reason for me to be pushing those languages as well. Makes sense. And it's funny that you're talking about this because uh, Facebook just came out and they said that they were removing the patents clause and moving to MIT license for React and, yeah. uh, you know, things like that. And so you can see some of the issues that come up, you know, and, and I'm not going to say that they were right or wrong for having that in their license i mean they wrote the code they created the framework they can license it however they want but you know it is interesting that you know sometimes it comes with a little bit of extra baggage because it comes from one of these big companies or it's built to solve mostly their use cases and then they try to extend it to use cases that make sense for the little guys like us yeah and most of the time it's usually stuff out of whim for example that there's stuff that doesn't doesn't even make a lot of sense so you have angular 2 now you have angular 4 and i think they're actually talking about angular 5 before we even saw we are we are seeing people just doing stuff because they can not because they need to so uh, and when this is the uh, the kind of direction you follow, it's it's not something that I would uh, bet my entire career on. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a twenty dollar credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for five dollars a month. You can get your servers in any of their ten data centers. And their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Uh, Eric, do you have some picks for us? I've got one pick, and um, so we bought new the new iPhones 
this week, we went down and picked up two new iPhone 8 Pluses. And I backed up my wife's phone. She had a 128-gig iPhone 7 Plus. Backed it up, right? And we're like, well, we don't want to get the 128 gigs. So, so I couldn't restore her stuff to her new phone. I'm like, oh, man. You'd think that Apple would have solved this, where I want to restore everything except for the photos. And you can't do that. So I told her, you're out of luck. <laughs> and then I, I might be able to fix it. So I found this app called, um, let me make sure, it's called iMazing. Uh, and this app is actually, it's such a great app. It lets you choose what parts of your backups you want to back up to your device. And it'll let you explore old backups. So if you have a bunch of old backups and you just need to get a photo off of it, you don't even need to sync it back to your to your phone. You can just open up that backup. So anyway, it's really, really, really cool. It's called iAmazing. I got it from, uh, I think I got it from the App Store, but the website is... I don't even know. I amazing uh, is pretty amazing. There you go. Awesome, Brian. What are your picks? Yeah, first of all, I want to on a second. I amazing. I've been using that for years. It, it had a different name before that, but yeah, it's a it's a fantastic application if you have an eye device uh, that you want to deal with. One of the one of my picks is a uh, an Elixir plug. Uh, generally used for um, a plug is like middleware for Elixir applications uh, for for web applications. It uses the library called Plug, and then you add these different um, um, pieces of middleware on top of it. It's very similar to Rack for for Ruby, but there's one called Plug Rails Cookie Session Store, which um, and and it's it basically walks you through how to make your uh, your Elixir application consume. Uh, and work with Rails sessions. Uh, so if, if you're looking to try to you know, dabble around with Elixir and Phoenix and uh, use it for parts of your application that where it would be a good fit, uh, you can start with that. The second uh, pick I have is something called Dry, D-R-Y. It, it is a front-end for Docker uh, containers. If you have a lot of Docker containers and images and you're you're kind of fumbling over the commands to list the processes and list the images and uh, maybe clean up those containers after after you've spun up a, a thousand of them accidentally. Uh, Dry is a nice little command line application that you can install, DRY, um, that gives you a nice graphical, somewhat graphical interface to working with the containers and managing the containers. Uh, those are my two picks. Awesome. Dave, what are your picks? All right. So uh, I recently joined the Apple... To- Apple Watch World, and this thing is, you know, at first I thought, you know, it's not that great. But then my Mac said, hey, by the way, do you want to unlock your Mac whenever your watch is in here? I'm like, sure, let's give that a shot. It's pretty awesome. Like, I never thought I would really enjoy the Apple Watch, but that feature in itself has made it worthwhile. So Cool. That's my pick. (laughs) All right. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. So the first pick that I have is <laughs> um, I've, I've got just it, it's more of, I guess, a meta pick or a life pick. Um, so I, I don't know how much I've talked about this on these shows because uh, I mentioned some of it on one show and some of it on another show. So anyway, um, but uh, last month, this last month has been kind of rough. It's just been really interesting. Um, our water main on our house broke. <laughs> we also had... Um, a couple of other issues. I can't even think of what they are now because I'm just completely fried. Uh, we had um, the people who are helping doing the do the production on the show notes uh, disappeared, um, you know, and so I, I wound up just not sleeping for about two weeks <laughs> trying to get all this work done. And um, 
you know, I know that we get into these situations sometimes in code and, you know, we're, we're racing for a deadline. We're trying to get all the stuff done. Our boss is breathing down our neck and it just doesn't seem like anything is quite lining up. And I just want to encourage anybody who's in that situation to just keep going, uh, just keep trying. You know, it, it may come to the point where, yeah, you know, you need to just quit while you're ahead. But I'm, I'm finding that a lot of this is just temporary and that if I keep doing the stuff that I know I'm supposed to be doing, that a lot of it works out. So um, if you're going through some rough times, you know, personally or professionally or both, um, yeah, just take some time, you know, take a deep breath and then, uh, you know, dive back in. Uh, Fabio, do you have some picks for us? Sure, I have two. Uh, I have two picks. Uh, so, with the first pick, if you wanna try Crystal, I would uh, recommend that you also check out that a framework called Camel. Uh, it's K E M A L. I'm gonna paste the link. Uh, it's a web framework that resembles Sinatra in a way. So uh, it's not exactly a copy of Sinatra, but you will uh, you will feel very very familiar uh, using Camel with Crystal. It will feel like doing small web application with Ruby and Sinatra. So this is one pick. Uh, the other pick is actually an application. Uh, I don't know if uh, some of you have heard of Discord before. So uh, Discord, it, it in many ways, it's like a, um, Slack, but for gamers. Most people in the gaming community probably already know about uh, uh, Discord. I, I've, I actually switched from Slack and Mattermost to use Discord in my own company because it has an active audio uh, channel support that everybody can be online uh, through audio at the same time. And the, the segue here is that it is actually built using Elixir. So their blog goes into a, a very, very detailed explanations of how they're using Elixir to scale so they can handle, for example, the entire community of Overwatch players and have like uh, 5 million concurrent users at the same time in their servers. So exactly the kind of use case that I just described. So those are two, uh, two of my picks. Nice. I'm a little bit curious. Can you record conversations off of Discord? I don't believe they have that feature built in. There may be some hacks, but uh, I don't think they have. Nice. Yeah, I've heard good things about a couple of these systems, and I was just curious if it did the recording too. All right, cool. Well, uh, Fabio, if people want to follow up with you or maybe you've written some blog posts on this stuff or anything like that, uh, where do they go? Sure. Uh, they, they're always welcome to go come to my social networks. I'm, I'm always Akita on Rails in all, in all of them. So facebook.com slash Akita on Rails, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, I'm always posting about everything about uh, nerdy stuff because I, I love pop culture. So m some of my latest posts over Facebook are probably going to be Rick and Morty. So uh, don't, don't judge. Uh, but <laughs> you can... Uh, <laughs> You can always go to my blog where I blog more serious technical stuff at akironrails.com. So uh, I invite you all to come and uh, ask me about anything. I'm usually available. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thank you for coming and thanks for speaking at the conference. Okay. Thank you. Thank right. you. See you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.